All right, we are down to the last couple of weeks of our 10-week series, Money Matters, What the Bible Says About Finances. Week number nine, page 177, as you'll see, deals primarily with the issue of life insurance and making decisions about life insurance, preparation for your own death, and making provisions for those you'll leave behind. So it deals with this issue of life insurance and all aspects of it, different types of life insurance, how much life insurance is necessary, all of that. That's really what week number nine is about. And because it's about that, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on week number nine. I'm going to spend some time on it, but I make no claim to being an expert on life insurance. One of the mistakes I've seen pastors make over the years is I have pastor friends who think once you get ordained, you become an expert on everything. You know how to build buildings. So when the church is going to build a building, the pastor's in the smack dab in the middle of all the nitty-gritty details of how to build a building. And you know about all these, all these subjects. Well, the truth of the matter is, I don't know. I not only don't know any more about building a building than you do, I know less than most of you know about it. That wasn't part of my ordination, my seminary training, any of that. And I'm okay with that. And I don't know any more than you know about life insurance either. What I know is biblical perspectives on this stuff, and that's what I bring to the table. And so that's why as we've gone through these sessions, I've sought to give you a biblical perspective on the issue at hand and leave to others who are experts in those areas to give you advice related to that particular area. So last week, we looked at issues related to financial planning in general. And I mentioned to you that our church has at least two people that do that for a living, And I gave apologies then, and I do now, if there are more that I've forgotten about or didn't know about. But I mentioned that Tony Lajanus does that for a living, and Preston Zale does that for a living. And so those are a couple guys that you could go talk to for professional advice about what we talked about in session number eight. Session number nine is about life insurance. We've got at least one person who does life insurance in our our church as well. Uh, Rich Carrico has done that for uh, a long time. I mean, he's only 30, but he's been doing it for like 20 years. It's amazing. (laughs) So he's an expert in that area. And if you want advice on life insurance, then Rich would be a good guy for you to go and see about it. But I can give perspective on biblical perspective on some of these issues related to life insurance. Look at page 178, if you would, then page 178. Problems associated with, with death. Problems associated with death. And underneath that, it says the most significant problem associated with death is described in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He who dies without having accepted the gift of Jesus Christ as payment for his own sin is eternally separated from God. That's the number one problem with death. It's not how my heirs are going to be left, as important as that is, and that's why the rest of the chapter is devoted to that. But that's not the most important issue, the most important problem associated with death. The most important problem associated with death is that death comes because of sin. And so I'd like to just expound on that a little bit and then move on. Death comes because of sin. And notice the last sentence in that paragraph. He who dies without having accepted the gift of Jesus Christ as payment is eternally, and there's a key word, separated from God. Separated from God. So note that word separated. If you 
have the notebook and we said we were giving it to you, or if you've paid for it or intend to pay for it, then you can, you can write in it. Underline it, circle it, star it, something like that. You have a notebook? You have a notebook at home? Were you going to do this via satellite, like from home? Is that what you were? <laughs> it's good to have friends I can pick on it. You just happen to be in the front row. Being in the front row is not a good thing if you don't have your workbook with you. This is like I used to, this reminds me of going back to my days as a youth leader. And the teenagers would come invariably, they would come to Sunday school without a Bible. They just waltz in, do this for years. I'm teaching these guys for years and they come in without a Bible. And for years I would say the same thing. I, I understand completely. I know what happened. Your parents told you they were taking you to Cedar Point and they brought you to, and they brought you to church. No wonder you're not prepared to come to church. Your parents lied to you. You didn't know you were coming to a place where they use a Bible. All right. But if you have the workbook, you can circle it, star it, underline it, that word separated. Why? Because death in the Bible means that. It means separation. And how do we know that? Well, you go back to the very beginning of your Bible. And you may remember that after God created the man and the woman, He gave instructions to Adam and Eve. And he said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to work the garden. And uh, you can have and freely eat of all the fruit of all the trees in the garden. But in the midst of the garden, there's one tree that you shall not eat of. You all know the sad story? They did. And God had promised them, warned them, in the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you all remember, you shall surely die. And so then you read on. And they do. And God had said, if you do, you will die. But the interesting thing is, Adam goes on to live like 900 years. So how do we get that? God says you eat of the fruit of the tree, you're going to die. Adam goes on and lives this long life. And we say, well, right at the very beginning of the Bible, God got it wrong. Well, of course, God did not get it wrong if we understand what death is. The word death in the Bible is separation. And spiritual separation is separation of the individual from God. Adam died the day he sinned. And he died the day he sinned because when he sinned, he became separated from his God. And that's the reason that every child of Adam, every man woman that has come into existence as Adam's progeny have been born as sinners separated from God. So we come into this world spiritually dead. Separated from God spiritually. Death means separation. Spiritual death is separation of the individual from God. The death we're most often familiar with most of us are familiar with, is physical death. Physical death is still separation. But it's separation of the spirit from the body. And so when one dies, his spirit leaves him, and he will go to one of two places. He will go to heaven or he will go to hell, his spirit. His body will be reunited with his spirit one day in the future resurrection. 
And so there's death, and death is always separation. There's spiritual death, which is separation of the individual from God. There's physical death, which is separation of the spirit from the body. And the Bible speaks of a third type of death as well. It's eternal death, which is separation of the individual from God forever. So people come into the world separated from God spiritually, but that does not need to be an eternal condition because God has given a provision to reestablish His relationship with His creatures that have been separated from Him. And so that's why Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal, not death, life through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first issue related to death is that death means that we are separated from God. And in fact, physical death occurs because of this spiritual death that came first. And all of it means the same thing, separation. That's the number one problem. And the only solution to that is relationship with God through Jesus Christ, receiving the gift that He has provided for us. Now, just say one other thing about that. I'll move on. Since everyone comes into this world spiritually dead, unless you think I make that up, the Bible says it explicitly. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 that you were dead in your sins. That is, in your sins you were separated from God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. Now, if everybody then comes into the world separated from God, spiritually dead, here's what that means. Nobody automatically has a relationship with God. Nobody by nature has a spiritual relationship with God. Do you all understand that? In fact, quite the opposite. By nature, we do not have a relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, verse 1 says we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Verse 3 says we were by nature objects of wrath. So in our very nature, coming into the world as a child of Adam, I'm born spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God. It is not natural for people to have a relationship with God then. And to reconcile, renew that relationship requires a supernatural act. And God does something supernatural. It's not natural. Naturally, we come in spiritually dead. We're not related to God spiritually. We're far from Him. But He performs a supernatural act on the heart of that person who was separated from God spiritually, spiritually dead. Verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Wow, what a marvelous thing, huh? I was born dead, by nature object of wrath, but in contrast to that, God, because of His mercy, made me alive. 
and I knew I had spiritual life as opposed to spiritual death, I knew that I had become reconciled to God, that He had done a supernatural work on my heart when I heard the Gospel message and I responded positively to it. The Holy Spirit does an act on the heart of a spiritually dead person to make him or her alive so that what they formerly were spiritually deaf to, D-E-A-F, they would not hear, they now hear. And they embrace. So you haven't always been a Christian. You... I pray often, and you have heard me pray, I say, Lord, I thank You that we have a relationship with You, that we are Your children who were at one time far from You. I pray that often. You know why? Because it applies to me and it applies to everyone here. Every last one of us was at one time far from God. Not me. I grew up in, I grew up in church. My dad was a preacher. I was never far from God. The truth of the matter is, I was born dead in my sin just like everybody else. And despite the fact that I had the privilege of being born in a Christian home and taught the Bible, I needed the Savior just like everybody else. And I had to come to Him and receive the good news of what He did for me just like everybody else. My girls, who are privileged to be in our home. And it's not because I'm there and my wife's there, but because God in His grace has made it a home where He's got two people that He's called out of the world and to Himself, who He's taught the Bible to. And in turn, we can teach the Bible to them. But despite all that, they have to come to the Savior just like everybody else. And I thank God that they have. And your kids as well. They come to a point in time where God turns the light on. And all that stuff that they had heard in Sunday school and they heard their mom and dad saying and they, and, and they heard their mom and dad praying about now makes sense. And when it starts to make sense and they're no longer deaf to it, but they receive it, that's the work of the Holy Spirit on the heart of that person doing a supernatural work, taking that heart that is naturally separated from God and making it alive so that it now hears. And then you say, yeah, I need that. I need what Jesus did for me, and I'm going to follow Him. That's what it means. What I just described to you is what it means to be born again. Here's a fancy term. We use the word born again for a good reason. The Bible uses it. John chapter 3 in your Bible, Jesus said to a religious leader, a religious leader, one of the best guys in town, no kidding, this guy had it together. And Jesus says to that guy, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Well, if he needed to be born again, and that guy was born of good stock, and he was born in a good family. If he needed to be born again, you can bet I do and you do. He says, now that word born again just means this, to be made spiritually alive. To be given spiritual life. And there's a big fancy term for that. Regeneration. Regeneration. Same word for being born again. Same as being made spiritually alive. And it works like this. You have natural generation. 
that is, you were generated from the loins of your mom and dad, who were generated from the loins of their mom and dad, and you go all the way back, and we got the original mom and dad, Adam and Eve. And in our first generation, we were born spiritually dead. And it takes an act of God to regenerate us. Give us spiritual life. Now, we're just going to take a, a moment. I told you I wasn't talking about life. Well, I guess I am talking about life insurance in a sense, aren't I? But that's what you need. Now, you just got to so you've got to lose the idea. Lose the idea. You know that I've I've always had a relationship with God. <laughs> Nobody has. Sons and daughters, and nobody has had a spiritual relationship with God until He is regenerated. He is born again. And the evidence that you've been born again is that you embrace what you formerly had rejected. I embrace the Savior and I'm going to follow Him. This afternoon, we're going to have baptism. And I encourage every one of you to come, 1.30, celebrate. That's what we call it, baptism celebration. But that baptism celebration is celebrating the fact that you've got people for whom God has turned on the light so that they're now going to follow Him. And what they were not naturally, they now are willing to do supernaturally because they've been regenerated. And they show that by being willing to stand up in front of a bunch of people and get dunked in water. You're going to dunk me in water in front of a bunch of people? Yeah, Jesus says do that as an evidence of the fact that you've been born again. That you've been saved. Regenerated. Now in just a minute here, we're going to pray. You say you can't pray until the end. Yeah, I can. One, I'm the pastor. Two, this is church. And three, praying is a good thing anytime. But especially after you've talked about the most important thing in the entire universe. Being born again. Receiving the free gift of salvation from the hand of God. And so we're going to pray. And we are going to have prayers of two types. Actually, prayers of three types. One type of prayer is going to be the prayer of the person who has come to Jesus. And it's going to be a prayer of thanks and gratitude. And as we bow, I encourage you, if you've come to the Savior, that you take this time to thank Him for what He did for you in Jesus Christ by, turning, by dying for your sins on the cross, paying the penalty that belonged to you and to me, and then at a point in time turning the light on when you heard the Gospel message to say, yes, that's who I need. That's what I need. I embrace the good news and I'm going to follow the Savior. That means He's made you alive and you came to Him and you thank God for that. Here's a second type of prayer. It's the person who says, I've never done that. I've never had a time where I embraced the Savior personally and I ask Him to be my Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Acknowledge that I was far from Him. Separated from Him. And ask Him to save me. Give me this gift of eternal life. 
and commit to following Him. When you say that in your own words, from your heart to God, that's the second type of prayer. I pray that some people are going to pray that prayer in just a moment. And mean it from their heart to God as evidence that He's made them alive. Then there's a third type. And the third type is the worst type. I hope we don't have anybody who does the third type. Who says, you know, I just, I'll, get it, I'll do it when I get around to it. God, I know you, you know, I think you're up there. I think there's somebody up there. But I'm not so sure about Jesus. I'm not so sure that I'm so bad that I need him to die on a cross for me. I'll let you know when I get around to it. That's the third type. And I, I trust that there'll be nobody here when we bow in just a moment who's in that third category. But I tell you what, friend, lest you are, here's another thing about death. Death is absolutely unpredictable. Physical death is unpredictable. And we come into this world with spiritual death separated from God. And if we leave this word world with spiritual death, when we physically die, that is it. It's over. Physical death that occurs while we are spiritually dead means eternal death. No second chance. No time to stand before the God who made you and the Savior who died before you and say, okay, I'm good with that now. You receive Him now. Three types of prayer. One, thanking God for giving a relationship where no relationship existed. Another, establishing that relationship by responding to the overture of the Holy Spirit, moving upon the heart of the person to make him or her spiritually alive who were formerly spiritually dead. Embracing the Savior and committing to follow Him as Lord. And then the third type I trust we won't have. We're going to pray. Let's bow. I'll lead in prayer. And I encourage you to pray one of those first two types of prayers. Okay? Let's bow before the Lord. Father, thank You for this time. I thank You, Lord, that we could take the time to be reminded of this most basic truth of the Word of God. That the God who made us intended for us to bring glory to Him by our lives, but that that glory has been diminished in our lives because the image of God has been tarnished in us by virtue of our sin. Lord, we know the story that You gave to us how our first parents sinned against You. And in that day, they surely did die. Separated spiritually from the God who made them. And all of their progeny that come into the world are naturally separated from God. No spiritual relationship with You. And yet, You've done what's necessary to reestablish that relationship in Jesus Christ. Lord God, we thank You for that. We thank You for who Jesus is. God in the flesh. That in His love and mercy, He came to do for me and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. On the cross, He paid in full the penalty for my sin that I've committed, that I will commit in the future, all covered by the blood of the precious Son of God. 
I thank you that when he walked this earth, he perfectly fulfilled your requirements, lived a sinless, righteous life. And when I embrace him by faith, both of those are applied to me. The penalty is paid. His righteousness is applied. And I stand before the Father complete. Thanks be to you. I thank you, Lord, that at a point in time for me, even though you in your grace and mercy gave me a family that loved me and taught me the truth, I still needed to embrace the Savior. I thank you, Lord, that you turned the light on for me by your Holy Spirit when I was 19. And I embraced the Savior and had a relationship with the God, with the God from whom I was formerly separated. I thank you for the difference that's made in my life. For the absolute promise that I have of eternal life. I thank you for the purpose that I have in this life, in the here and now, and the joy that goes with that. Allowing me to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ to carry that good news to others. For us, all those who have embraced the Savior, are now His ambassadors to our children, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers. I thank, we thank you for that. Because it's not because of our own work, our own merit that you've saved us, but because of your mercy. Lord, I thank you. Myself, so many of my brothers and sisters are thanking you now. And, and Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit is working on the heart of others right now. And that they're embracing the Savior. And that new life is being given to them by your Holy Spirit. And that a relationship is being established which formerly did not exist. They're embracing the Savior. That they're committing to follow Him as Lord. And then as they learn in the Bible what you say you want them to do, they don't ask questions. They don't hesitate. They say, yes, I will do what Jesus tells me to do. We thank you in advance for what you're doing, going to do in their lives in the future. I pray, Lord God, that there will be no one here who will reject the message of the Gospel. We do not know that we have tomorrow. We do not know that we have this afternoon. So, Lord, in your mercy, we ask you to save some who can give the same testimony that I have and that others have in this room. So that we can now live our lives for the glory of the God who made us and the Savior who bought us. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for allowing me to pray in the middle of the service. If you're somebody who says, you know what, I had never quite heard that that way. I had never embraced the Savior personally myself. And you did that just now. I want to know about it. And here's why I want to know about it. One, I'm nosy. But more important, it's my job, it's our job as a church to help you. Because coming to Jesus is just the beginning. Living for Jesus is the rest of your life. We want to help you to do that. So come and let me know when you leave today. You say, I trusted Christ as my Savior today. I embraced the gospel. Now what do I do? And we'll talk about it, okay? All right. Let's look at page 178 then further. Problems associated with death. The number one problem is that death becomes, comes because of sin. There's spiritual death, there's physical death, and there's eternal death. 
But then a second problem, that fourth paragraph down says, second problem associated with death is really a set of problems relating to your finances. Unless you plan the distribution of your estate, the government will do it for you. That's a problem. So you have to make provision for this stuff. Now here's one of the things that I hear people say, not as it's applied to estate planning, but just life in general, that I think they quote mistakenly. They misplace this principle. And that is, have you ever said or heard this? If it ain't broke, what? Don't fix it. And I've said that. And the truth of the matter is, there's truth to that. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't just go around looking for stuff to make busy work for yourself and other people. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So that's true. A lot of times we just make work for stuff that we really don't have to mess with. But there's a sense in which that can be untrue. Because it's really a wise thing to fix something that's not broken now, but you know is going to break in the future. That is, if we continue on the same course and no action is taken, this thing is going to break. Therefore, I should fix it before it breaks. I should make some provision for it so that it doesn't break, so that we don't have a catastrophe on our hands. I've encountered this in ministry many a time. I try to do this as I lead the church. I try to say, where is our church headed? What are the potential pitfalls for that direction on the road ahead? And I try to make provisions for us to avoid those pitfalls. And sometimes when I make the case to those affected... This is what I think we need to do. Sometimes, perhaps not in these words, I get, hey, it ain't broke. Don't fix it. My point is, it's going to break. So let's take action now. And that attitude spills over to issues of planning for the future. It ain't broke now. I'm alive now. Live it up now, but the truth of the matter is, you know it's going to break. It is going to come. It's not a question of if it's going to come. The only question is when it's going to come. And because that's true, then we need to lose this idea of if it ain't broke, don't fix it, as it applies to my inevitable death. And so I need to prepare for it. And they give lots of good suggestions for how to prepare for it. Now, here's another attitude that gets in the way of doing that. And I'm pretty much done with session number nine. But here's another attitude that gets in the way of that. You know, if I plan for the future, then I'm doing God's job. I mean, I don't know when I'm going to die. God certainly does. I have an appointment with death. God knows the day of my death. He knows that absolutely. And if, and if I start making provisions for this thing that I don't know, then I'm taking God's job in my hands. That's the attitude that many people have. So, I don't buy life insurance. I don't do financial planning. Because that's all related to the future and only God knows the future. And here's the misunderstanding that people who say that have. They misunderstand that although God is sovereign, He's in control of everything that happens. He knows what's going to happen. He's designed what's going to happen. Although He knows all of that, He makes us responsible for what we do in the here and now. That is, God is sovereign, but we're also responsible. 
I've illustrated this to you in the past, so if you've heard this three or four times, give me a courtesy chuckle anyway. But the illustration is of a guy who was living in an area that was being flooded. Torrential rains were coming down. And this guy was a guy who believed in the sovereignty of God. God will take care of it. As a matter of fact, for me to take action is an act of a lack of faith. I'm somehow saying God won't take care of it. He believed that, as many Christians mistakenly believe. And so as these torrential rains were coming down, and he had somebody come by after it got to be about six feet, and he's on his roof, a guy comes by in a boat, and he says, look, the forecast is the rain's going to keep coming. Get in so we can escape. And he says, no, God's going to take care of me. And the rain keeps coming, and he climbs up a tree. He's the top of this tree. Another boat comes by. And says, hey, it's going to keep coming. Get in. No, God's going to take care of me. A little bit later, he's just at the very top of the tree. He's hanging on a branch. He's ready to go. A helicopter comes by. says, I'll throw you a rope. No, God's going to take care of me. It keeps coming. He drowns. He dies. He stands before the Lord. He says to the Lord, Lord, I had great faith. I, I told everybody that you were going to take care of me, and I drowned. And the Lord says, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What else do you want me to do? Now you see the mistake, don't you? God has made us responsible to avail ourselves of the tools that He has provided. Make no mistake, He's provided the tools. He's provided the means for you to use your brain, take responsibility to make provision for things that will happen. It's not a matter of if they'll happen, it's a matter of when they will happen. And so, in order for you to take full advantage of planning for the future, for the benefit of your family, you need to lose those if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and that God's sovereign and the most faith is shown by taking no action. All right, with that, if you'll turn to session number 10, session number 10, which is on page 195, and I'll introduce session number 10, and then we'll finish this series next week. Session number 10. We've gone through nine sessions. The heart of this workbook is found on page 34, where there's a diagram called the Financial Planning Diagram, and it has four steps to it. And the first step is to figure out where you are, and then the first few weeks we did that. Where am I financially? The second step is to figure out where I need to go to make some short-term and long-term objectives. And we did that in the next few weeks. And then the third step is, having figured out where I am and where I need to go, to begin establishing some margin for myself. Cash flow margin. And then finally, we've been in the fourth step. Having established this margin, take steps to maintain what you have, increase that, and prepare for the future. Those are the four steps. That's what we've covered. And now in this final session, I'm going to deal with, okay, now I've got some excess. What am I going to do with that excess? And Ron Blue is making the case that we should want to do this not so that we can get rich, not so that we can just accumulate stuff and money, but so that we can use it for eternal purposes. That's what this final session is about. Biblical answers to the questions of giving. And on that first page, page 195, Americans are known as a generous people, but exactly how generous are we? 
Notice this next statement. According to the IRS, 1.7% of adjusted gross income is the average charitable deduction. Now, I hear Sean Hannity, for instance, constantly talking about how generous Americans are. He's always patting us on the back for how generous we are. And we always tell ourselves how generous we are. But the facts say something else about the country as a whole. 1.7% given to charitable giving, and charitable giving includes church giving. 1.7%. Less than 2% of our income. It goes on. Notice the third paragraph. Sam Erickson of the Christian Legal Society once did a personal study of average charitable giving. His conclusion was that all Americans give, on the average, 25 cents a day or 91 bucks a year. And evangelical Christians gave an average of $1 a day or $365 a year. Now, evangelical Christians. What's an evangelical Christian? That's somebody that believes in the evangel. The word evangel is the word for gospel. Somebody who believes in the gospel. Evangelical Christian. But $365 a year. One scholar... J. Robertson McWilkin, former president of Columbia International University, pointed out in a speech that if members of the Southern Baptist Convention alone, not to just pick on them, but just because they are the largest Protestant denomination in the country, 16 million members strong. By the way, our church is an independent Baptist church. We're not part of the Southern Baptist Convention or any other convention. But he just uses them as an example. If they alone, if each member would give an average of 100 bucks a year to foreign missions, we'd have over $1.4 billion a year. They're nowhere near that level now. If they were, the fulfillment of the Great Commission could probably be financed rather easily in this generation by one denomination. Down at the bottom, several years ago, a speaker at a missions conference quoted statistics showing that in the United States, more money is spent on chewing gum and dog food than on foreign missions. And I am so glad that that is in this book. Because I've used the dog food illustration. And some of you have allowed your dog to attack me because I said that. Or prayed that your dog would attack me because I said that. I've said it a couple of times, and it's not a swipe at dog owners or dog lovers. But it is to make a point, you know? Comparatively speaking, what's more valuable? You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't labor. They don't have to toil. Your heavenly Father takes care of them. And do you remember what He says? Are you not more, much more valuable than they are? And the question we've got to then ask ourselves is, all this other stuff, including our pets, I'm not against having pets, I said when I said it, so don't stick your dog on me. I said if you have a dog, feed it. Okay? But we do need to ask the question, aren't souls more valuable than they? And when you read statistics like we spend more on dog food than on trying to reach souls, that ought to be a convicting thing for us. Or if you're not a pet owner, like I'm not, not for conviction reasons, I'm just not. It's really, it's because I'm lazy. I don't want to clean up after the thing. Chewing gum. Some of the other things that we've talked about in this series. We spend more on that stuff than on 
foreign missions. Final point, we'll be done. First full paragraph on page 196. As a financial planner, my first paying client was a man who said his goal for the rest of his life was to retire as soon as possible in order to work full-time on the mission field. And he goes on to describe what they did. I'll just make this final point. We'll be done. But just to think about somebody like that who has set as his goal or her goal to say, you know what, I want to retire so I can die on the golf course. But he doesn't. Did you know the average... That's not what this guy's saying. Do you know the average person dies five years after they retire? So I waited all that time to retire. These are the golden years. And the average person, five years or less, they're gone. And let me just make another statement to you. If the person lives 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years, but they don't use that retirement for something that has eternal significance, they died long before they physically died. Because you're just biding your time. You're doing time in what you've heard me call the Bill Knapps of life. God's waiting room, just waiting for Him to take you home. And hopefully that will be on the golf course. I'm not against golf like I'm not against dogs. But the mission's more important than golf and the mission's more important than dogs and chewing gum. As we look at our retirement, we ought to look at it that way. We ought to say, hey Lord, you've given me now time and you've given me years of wisdom that I can now invest. And also, presumably, I've accumulated some money as well. You've given me all of that that I can use for eternal perspective. I am so thankful for the retired people that we have in our church who look at life that way. we got a bunch of them. A bunch of them in this room right now. I thank God for those people. They're some of the most helpful people that we have in our church. And they've said, God's given me time and He's given me wisdom and He's given me resources and I'm going to use them for eternal significance. Thank God. And those of us that are younger, we need to look toward retirement with the same kind of perspective. My final illustration is of Grant's dad. Grant Talley's dad is Cliff Talley. Some of you know Cliff. And I tell Grant often how I marvel at his father who raised all his kids to serve the Lord and they know the Lord, who retired as an engineer at Ford Motor Company, and that guy uses the God-given abilities that he has and the time he has to advance the mission to which God has called us. Here's a guy who works with engineering students at Wayne State University because he was an engineer himself. He works with Chinese engineering students in a Bible study. He teaches them engineering stuff, but he also has Bible study with them. And he prepares his own Bible study and he takes his own time. And he's doing something like renting a house down near Wayne State now to do that very thing. Here's a guy who understands the mission. And he understands that God gave me this engineering ability and God gave me this Bible knowledge and this wisdom and these resources. Not to die on the golf course, but to die in the saddle, man. Die at work. Doing the Lord's work. Doing something that matters. You go into your retirement like that, 
you are less likely, obviously I can't predict, you're less likely to be the statistic that dies within five years. One of the reasons those people die within five years is there's nothing left for them. How many people do you know, they retire and they say, I don't know what to do with myself. He just doesn't know what to do with himself. She just doesn't know what to do with himself. I say, I know what you should do with yourself. Come see me. I'll tell you what to do. We've got plenty for you to do. Okay? All right. Think about that issue, and we'll finish up this series next week in Chapter 10. Okay? We'll pray briefly. 1.30 this afternoon here on Baptist for our baptism celebration. Okay? Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the reminder of the work of the Lord Jesus in our first hour on the cross. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. Lord, we look forward now this afternoon to celebrating with those who have committed themselves to the Savior and committing to following Him as as their Lord. I pray that it will be a a spiritual milestone for them and it will be a time of witness as well to some who may come that do not know You. Go with us now in Christ's name. Amen.